Hello and welcome to Coastal Connections, the road to the Isles. The podcast exploring the timelessly alluring appeal of the West Highlands of Scotland. I'm Neil Robertson, a travel writer living in Loch Aber. And I'm the producer, Freya. In this series, we've been getting out and about in the beautiful region of Loch Aber, from Morven to Malig, to capture the stories that make this place so magical and welcoming. And we hope we'll inspire you to come here in the way that we really think suits it best. Slowly, gently and ready to experience something new. Last time, we were working up an appetite with the spectacular seafood available around Arasig, which is Neil's home territory. But this week, I went roaming on my own all the way down to the southern limits of these peninsulas, to Morven. Neil, as usual, would you please set the scene and give us a bit of background? Of course. So Morven is one of several sparsely populated regions in the West Highland Peninsulas. You're south of the road to the Isles at Loch Islet, continuing south past Loch Sunart, which we stopped at in episode two, of course, and you're still north of the spectacular Isle of Mull. To the west, you've got Ardnamurchan and the most westerly point of the British mainland. To the east, Loch Linney, and then the ever-popular port town of Oban past that. And it does feel very wild. You, you drive through huge swathes of rugged, yet somehow gentle hill country and you're pretty much guaranteed to see herds of deer on the move as you travel. You don't find the huge peaks that you get further inland but you get that Atlantic freshness and it's a lovely and constant reminder of where you are on the coast. And I sent you down to Morvern and Morvern means the Great Cleft, a meeting point of freshwater and sea locks down here, to have a nosy around and to see what you thought of the place. Well, I was really looking forward to this trip. I mean, I look forward to all of these trips, but I was really looking forward to this one because I'd been down this way once before and I loved that sense of seclusion and those massive landscapes, but I hadn't really explored Morven. Well, you know how I feel about history, Freya, and I just think it always adds something to visiting a place. But uh, did you know much about the history of the area beforehand? Well, A wee bit. I loved Madeleine Bunting's book, Love of Country, which is a really excellent fusion of travel log and social history of the Hebrides. And some of those stories are replicated throughout the Highlands. But I'm not so good on the politics of it all the way that you are, Neil, especially the Highland clearances. Mm, Yes, um, well, it was one of the darkest chapters of Scotland's story and it's just an infamous scar. Most who are familiar with the concept of clearing land, i.e. in this case purging it of humans, will think firstly of the Jacobites and the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Culloden. The British government then forced many Highlanders off their land with a a vindictiveness that for me still reads like a, a punishment, taking them out of their homes to make way for sheep and cattle. It was more or less a mandatory emigration to far off shores for these people. It wasn't all forced, that must be said. It's an important caveat to add. A lot of immigration was voluntary. It was folk who were looking for, for better lives in less harsh climatic conditions. But it's still that image of families being herded up and boated off that sticks in the memory. I think it's a huge contributor to the melancholy and the, the sad romance, really, of the Highlands to this day. So when you said I was going to go for a walk through a woodland to talk about history, I was ready to learn and I got a lot more than I bargained for because I met up with a local expert, Dr Jenny Robertson, and she must have the coolest job title in Loch Aber. She's a freelance archaeologist. (laughs) Brilliant. I know, right? And while that might make you think of what's underground, 
Going for a walk with Jenny shows you that what's on the surface is just as interesting. <laughs> well, it's quite a quite a misty, drizzly day yeah. here, but it's actually really still quite a nice day for walking. We've had a lot of beautiful cover through the, the very moss-rich forested area. And we've walked up the side of a of a cleared bit of forest. And to me, we've just seen a, a pile of old stones. <laughs> But to you, it's something entirely different. Well, it is the site of a township, which was cleared in 1824 by the landowner to make way for a sheep farm. It had been a thriving community where there were certainly 45 people in a 1779 survey, and probably up to maybe 70 or so by the time of the clearance. But what it is noted for is that it's one of the very few first-hand accounts of an eviction because one of the women who was cleared with her family went on to Glasgow to work in a cotton mill and her story was written down by the nephew of the minister and um, that has, was published and in fact that became instrumental in gathering the feeling about the clearances and led to the Napier Commission in the 1890s which introduced crofting eventually and gave people more rights. And she wrote, When we got the summons to quit, we thought it was only for getting an increase of rent, and this we willingly offered to give, but permission to stay we got not. The day of the flitting came. The officers of the law came along with it, and the shelter of a house even for one night more was not to be got. We sat for a time on Knock Nancarn to take the last look at the place where we had been brought up. The houses were already stripped, the bleat of the big sheep was on the mountain, the whistle of the lowland shepherd and the bark of the dogs were on the bray. It's quite powerful really, isn't it? You know, it's a terrible thought. <laughs> yeah, to have so little yeah. control over... Yeah, and just they had no choice. And they offered to pay more rent because they, they could do that. I mean, it, you know, you think they're living in great poverty, but they did have enough, you know, they had enough. But that wasn't the point, it was mm -hmm. just... Um, thought they could get more from sheep farming and so on. And what happened to the West Highlanders that were cleared? Where did they, it's, it's like a sort of, is it like a diaspora? A lot left, but the, the one owner, Sinclair, who lived among them, he did clear some people, but he tended to try and move them around his estate rather than just ship them out. And he set up, really, Loch Island Village. So that was for the dispossessed. And that grew to about 300 people by the mid-19th century from nothing. It was only set up about 1830 for the dispossessed who were living in pretty a lot of poverty, but at least they still had a home and they could stay. Others left the area because the Mary of Anymore, whose story was recorded about this township where we're standing, she went to Glasgow and quite a few left further. And they walked up over that ridge to get to the, to get to the ship. <laughs> they had to walk they, out of here. Yes, well, that was well, they, that was the only way out. They walked away up a ridge, and her husband carried his mother in a creel on his back, and so on. Wow, <laughs> it's a beautiful sheltered spot, even in this slightly dreary day. Do you think we could go down and have a closer well, look? We'll have a look because there is a nice footpath round the remains. The area was planted with trees in the 1930s and 40s, but then those were harvested in 1993. 
and the Forestry Commission took a lot of effort to protect the remains. I did an archaeological survey while the trees were standing, so they knew what to do and how to look after them, and they subsequently made a nice footpath around them, so you can see them today. Let's get a bit closer then. Water running everywhere. Yeah, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> so, Jenny, before you said this area was managed by the Forestry Commission, before the trees were cut down here, did anyone know about this settlement? Uh, well, people did, but it wasn't widely shared just because they, you couldn't see them anymore. But people locally did. I mean, there were people descended from the people who were cleared. Really? Yes, yes. So people certainly knew about it. And you were brought in to survey the site. What does that actually mean? I'd made a plan. I recorded all the standing structures just to find out what was there so that they could protect it. And it's just recorded all the buildings. There are about 22 houses and outbuildings. There are at least four kale yards where vegetables were grown. There are quite a few corn-drying kilns because growing any crops in this kind of climate they had to dry the grain before milling. There's some evidence of the arable ground so there were some little areas where it looked as if it had been terraced with the little clearance cairns but I think more of that is probably still under trees really. But where we are is in a little bowl with a steep ridge to one side and the top of that ridge is basalt rock which degrades and provides relatively fertile soil. So this was quite a rich area. This valley where we are then has had settlement from prehistoric times. Wow. At either end of this valley there, are remain, there have been collected remains of Mesolithic settlers who were the first people to arrive in Morven after the Ice Age or to arrive in Scotland after the Ice Age. On the west coast, the earliest from excavations is 8000 BC, which was on Rum. And here, well, we don't know what date these are, but it was that sort of 8000 to 5000 BC, roughly, that they could have been around that time. They found little collections of flint and quartz, bits of some tools and some just flakes, waste products of flint napping. Then we also, at one end of the valley have the only remains of the Neolithic period, which were the first farmers who came in. That was maybe 4,000, 3,000 BC. And we have a passage grave. And then also we have... The other end is a collection of Bronze Age burial cairns, so that was more occupation about 1,500 BC. And then the other end, back to the other end, we have an Iron Age fort. So we've got the entire prehistoric range in this valley. It's amazing, isn't it? Because you think... As an outsider, you come in here and you think of the landscape as being quite inhospitable, mm-hmm. quite wild and remote, you know, for the sheep and the trees, really. But this well, was a prime location going back. Going back, this was definitely because in those early days, it was quite heavily wooded inland. So certainly from Mesolithic times onwards, the sea, the seaways were the motorways of the day. And the hunter-gatherers particularly enjoyed exploiting all the resources so they went inland they could do some hunting there might be deer 
I mean, they had other things to contend with. There were bears and wolves and all that kind of thing. But they also had the fishing. They had fish and shellfish, nuts and berries and everything. They could exploit everything. They were nomadic. So they could just cruise around and find a good place, set up camp for a while. It continued that way because the Iron Age forts are all along the coast. So they were, again, using the seaways. And even into medieval times, again, the castles are all on the coast. So it was only later, but when then people relied on roads, that this became a bit of a backwater. The car's responsible for a lot of, <laughs> yes. a, a lot yes. of bad things, yeah. isn't yes. it? Yes, yes. Um, but the other thing to remember is that what you're looking at, these stone remains are only the latest phase of settlement here. So these tenants tended not to be building in stone until about 1750 or so. Prior to that, they were in like creel houses built of maybe a stone foundation and I did find one somewhere in this area just a little stone foundation with then like a wickerwork side crook frames where they had a wooden arch and put um, wickerwork or turf seeding just to make the house that has then been built over you see by the later stone remains so there could be much earlier stuff underneath where we're standing this anymore settlement was first recorded in 1674 but there are others. There's one on the other side of the valley which was recorded in 1390. I mean, they could go... That's only the first written record. I mean, they could go much before then. None, none of these have been excavated. So if you did dig some up, you could just keep on going down to medieval, maybe Norse even, which would be exciting, or pre- prehistoric. I've got a question about digging. Yeah. Because you're an archaeologist. Yeah. That would automatically make me think of, of digging and going yes. down but a lot of your work is actually on the surface well, it? It, well just because I've been working as a one man band really so it's easier it's quite diffi- I'd have to get a whole team and equipment and it's quite difficult to do all that in a remote area so I do but there's a lot that you can tell from the surface I mean I go for walks and I'll say oh look at that dike or something and people say what you know so you just you get your eye in and you can see what you're looking at it's a good thing to remember isn't it that you might come up here and be doing your mountain biking or your wildlife spotting or your kayaking or something like that but actually just walking around and looking at the surface of the ground is telling a story yeah absolutely yes it's all here (laughs) so listening to you talk about these you know, very old periods in history and right up to the clearances really went. It feels like feels like humans and, and landscape were in quite good balance until really quite recently in this history. Oh definitely, because the agricultural practices followed were very tuned in to the environment. This was a area known for grass, it was pasture. The same kind of agricultural economy was followed for thousands of years up until the end of the 18th century and the Gallic culture was very tuned in to the environment and to nature Uh, there are Gallic bards in Morven who wrote a lot about nature they used their resources wisely So if we look back over this period of about 8,000 or so years in in this particular (laughs) valley what do you think us in in the 21st century can learn from from Mesolithic man? <laughs> well, I think just to get a better balance between the humans and the environment, because humans are part of the problem, because bringing in the sheep in the 19th century and then a lot 
lot of deer because the sheep left and then there was a lot of deer stalking. Overgrazing damaged the landscape. But then humans are part of the solution because I think if you, you, we can learn a lot from the 18th century townships where they practised very ecological kind of farming, but they were, there were also trees that was going along at the same time as trees were being managed and allowed to regrow behind fences and walls and so on. So they can all work together. I think we can learn a lot from the 18th century. <laughs> Well, what a fantastic contribution. 10,000 years of human history in one valley. It's impressive, isn't it? I love that about this kind of history. It's not big and grand. It's not the medieval castles or the Neolithic stone circles that you can find elsewhere on the West Coast. But it doesn't need to be. If you stumbled upon any more, it's not immediately dramatically evocative. But it forces you to work harder and just takes some time. You'll get there. It really opened my eyes and I'm very grateful to Jenny Robertson for sharing her expertise. And even if history isn't your thing, it's also just a really lovely walk. There's lots of information about the route if you search Innimore Township online. Something that really resonated with me listening to Jenny was just how much of an impact sheep have have made in the Highlands. Crofting on a large scale feels like it's been a way of life since forever, but not so. Yeah, and it's so interesting how one commercial decision like turning the land over to thousands of sheep can reverberate in so many ways, upsetting a balance that's existed for centuries. And that takes us on to our next story today. Well, it's always hard to separate people from nature in the Highlands, so I thought it was only right that you got to discover how locals and landscape are striving for balance in the 21st century. Land management practices have come a long way since the layers of Victorian times, and a great place to see this in action is Ardtornish. It's a beautiful estate in Morvern with a modern outlook. They're involved in everything from hydro schemes to tourism and conservation. The team at Ardtornish are thinking differently about traditional Highland estate culture, and part of that is working collaboratively. So, to find out more, I met up with Ross Mackay. He's the land property manager at Artornish, and we were joined by another expert, Steve Hardy. Steve works for the Scottish Wildlife Trust, and he's the warden of the Rohoy Hills Nature Reserve. Steve and Ross work closely together, and between them, they have a wealth of knowledge about the flora and fauna of Morven, alongside the challenges of climate change. And we met for a walk in the beautiful Black Glen. And if you know what you're looking for, it's a glen full of natural treasures. And here's Ross to set the scene for us. So we're at the foot of the Black Glen. This is part of a a nature reserve that we run in conjunction with the Scottish Wildlife Trust. And how how much land are you working with here? 14,000 hectares. The majority of that is open hill. Quite a lot of ancient native woodland, as you you can see see around us here. These are some beautiful old oak woods. And we did a a really big acorn collection in here this year. We're trying to get, you know, more West Coast provenance acorns into the kind of commercial tree market. Does that mean you're like doing a kind of genealogy of acorns? So all we did in practice was lay nets out through this ground here and gathered up four tonnes of acorns, about 1.7 million acorns. And they are sold to a tree seed merchant and they'll sell them on to nurseries all across 
Scotland and possibly England. When you're planting trees, you know, Scottish forestry will insist that you plant trees of the correct provenance. And now anyone who's wanting to plant West Coast oak will have a good, good supply. And Steve, what does your job entail? Well, the, the reserve was established in the 50s and it's had a warden or a ranger since the, the mid-80s. And since then it's just been annual and ongoing surveys and monitoring. So it's really all about long-term monitoring to see how all the different habitats and wildlife on the reserve is doing. So Steve, thinking about climate change and the work that you do here, what do you notice of, of climate change here and what would heading in the right direction be? There's so many different examples of climate change that I'm seeing, like the last few springs have been incredibly cold. Walking through this oak wood, normally you would see it um, greening up end of April and early May, but the last few springs it's just been like winter until wait, right towards the end of May. So all the summer migrants, summer birds from Africa were coming up and they would be arriving and hoping to get on with the breeding season with a nice supply of insects and there was just nothing for them. It was just so cold. Another example is one of the golden eagle nests was literally washed away and they do not nest, they don't choose to nest under waterfalls. <laughs> you know, they've, they've, they've chosen these sites very carefully and this particular nest has been there for decades, possibly even centuries. And we had a horrendous spell of wet weather one winter recently and it washed the whole ledge away. Another example is the Arctic alpine plants on the mountains. Um, they're struggling because the, the mountains are kind of greening over. But what we can do about it and the way we're hoping the direction is going is all linked in with particularly deer management, bringing the numbers down low enough because there are too many deer since the, we've lost the wolf and since stalking became popular about 100 years ago deer numbers have been way too high and prior to that for a couple of hundred years there were thousands and thousands of sheep here, 29,000 sheep at one point here and that that number of sheep and that number of deer have just decimated the hills really so to get it back, get the hills back to health we need to reduce sheep numbers which we have done and try and bring the deer numbers down and that's the way we are going which is really good. So Ross I imagine that deer must form part of your to-do list at certain times of the year. How does that work for you? Yeah, so I was actually just uh, this morning, we've got the, the last hind of the annual cull. It's it's not a huge part of my job, but I do do get involved in the cull. And when, when you're culling the animals, are you are you bringing the, the meat back off the hillside to eat it? So we, we bring the majority of the carcasses back for sure, but we started leaving some carcasses on the hill, particularly for the for the eagles. We have quite a few pairs of both sea eagles and golden eagles. But yeah, we thought it was important to leave some carcasses out and, and get the get the birds in good condition for nesting season. Steve, I mean I imagine a lot of people if 
they're coming up here and they're interested in birds, eagles must be fairly high on the list of things that people want to see. Yeah, very much so. Eagles, otters, deer actually as well. But yeah, everybody would like to see eagles when they come here. And what's the, what's the population of eagles like? Well, in, in Morven, I believe there's around nine or ten pairs. But they are really struggling, or have been in recent years. The last decade or so, the breeding success has just plummeted. Like, like last year, just one pair raised one chick in the whole region. Um, sea eagles are doing it a bit better because they have a much more varied diet. They nest kind of along the shores and around the coasts, so, and you can see them really low down, whereas golden eagles are much more shy and uh, much more of a hill bird. So the, the golden eagles are struggling because the hills are in such a bad state. So yeah, leaving deer out on the hill in the winter really will help them get through the winter at least. Ross, can I ask you about the trees? Because we've just walked past the area where you collected millions of acorns. It's quite a blend of trees here, isn't it? And I've heard about this Atlantic rainforest. Can you tell us a bit about that? What we're in right now in the Black Glen is predominantly oak here. And I think what, what makes it special is the, the plants that are actually growing at height within the trees. Your, your, your mosses and liverworts and such like, that's, the, that's one of the real special features of it. Along the coast is also some pretty special area of hazelwood. And we have, we have a, an ashwood triple SI that's actually in a bit of trouble with a disease. What's a triple SI? It's a, a site of special scientific interest. And we have four, five on these. The reserve is a, a triple SI and it has, I think, four areas of, special areas of conservation, SACs, and this is an SAC. So this is a really special area inside an already special area, if you like. We talked about all the designated sites and Nature Scott kind of identify the key features of each site and they can be different. Most of the designations we have around here are about woodland uh, and herbivore impact is really the key thing that's stopping these designated sites achieving a favourable condition. And that's not just deer, it can be livestock as well. And both elements of that are, are actually within our control. So we should be able to get to a place where these designated sites turn a corner. So if I understood you correctly, really it's about reducing the deer numbers to give the, the forests a chance to maintain their diversity and, and become fully mature, is that right? Yeah, well, so what you'll notice around us, we, we're surrounded by trees that are late in their lives. There's open space here and there's an absence of young trees that are replacing them. And what we do have, where there are young trees replacing them is you're replacing these nice oak trees with birch trees. Now, you're not getting that, that replacement of kind of high nature value species like oak. Oaks in particular are very palatable. So even at relative low deer densities, young oak will get kind of disproportionately targeted. And when you say they've got a high nature value, is that because they support many forms of life on the tree? Exactly, exactly that. So if there was a hierarchy for the amount of species supported by a tree, the oak is at the top of that hierarchy. I think it's over 300 species that are reliant on an oak. 
and if you looked at the number of species that are reliant on a, on a birch, I don't know the number, but it's probably less than 100. Steve, could you give us a bit of insight into the multi-storey life of an oak? What kind of life forms are we finding on an oak tree? I guess most of all it'll be uh, an abundance of insects and that will be a great food source for a, a much bigger variety of birds. But, I mean, there are a few specialities. I mean, here we have a butterfly that's... And it's, it's kind of linked with climate change because it's become a bit milder. It's been able to push a bit further north, and I found it here in 2006. It was a, a new record for the reserve, and it turned out a new record for the highlands, which was very exciting. And it's the purple hair streak, and they live in the tops, in the canopies of the oak trees. So they're very easy to miss. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they are here now, and they're established, and they're actually over the other side of Loch Sunart on Ardnamurkin, so they're pushing further north still. So we've followed a, a really quite manageable track through the Black Glen, and as we've gone along further, what was a little burn below us has turned into to quite a dramatic river below us. And I wanted to ask you about water because it feels like water is just such an integral part of everything around here. It's just absolutely everywhere. That's, that's owed to our glorious climate. <laughs> We're surrounded by, the, by water. It, it, you know, it shapes, shapes the woodlands here, it shapes the, the, the hill ground, it influences our, our wildlife. It has a, a direct impact on a lot of the businesses around here. You'll find quite a lot of hydro economically that's enormous for this area and we're probably oh, by by a very good way we're a, as a peninsula we're net net exporter of energy by probably tens of times more than we use so and we can we can feel good about that talking about hydro schemes this was recognized as one of the best sites for a potential hydro scheme in the whole of Scotland but because it is such a special site, it's on a nature reserve, it's in a triple SI, an SAC has all these special creatures and plants in it. That has been enough to prevent that happening. I'm absolutely all for hydro schemes. I'm absolutely all for doing things to mitigate climate change and for green energy. But sometimes there are places where you should not go. And this, I believe personally, that this is one of them because it's an incredibly special gorge. It's it's got internationally rare bryophyte species in it, and the bryophytes are the tiny little green plants that grow right along the water's edge and in the splash and the spray. And further up, there's a population of freshwater pearl mussels which are very, very endangered. So it's a very, very special gorge, very special burn. So it's all about trying to strike that balance. Yeah, yeah. and recognising the, the really special places, you know, and protecting them. Well, that was another really enlightening, but also just beautiful walk. Many thanks to Ross Mackay and Steve Hardy for that. Thanks also to Dr Jenny Robertson for taking part in this episode, to Kat McLaughlin at our Tarnish Estate and Kirsty at the West Highland Peninsula's team for looking after me so well. I hope it won't be too long before I'm back looking for those elusive eagles. Oh, hey, I'll bet on it. This is a part of the world that takes time to grasp, so multiple visits it is, Freya. And I think from now on, Neil, 
You'll have to be in charge of all of my travel arrangements in Scotland. Oh, that's what I do and it'd be a pleasure. Well, I hope you, the listener, will join us for our next episode. We'll be on the art trail in Recipol, where we'll also be learning about Gaelic song. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coastal Connections Road to the Isles. You can find out more about any more at the Forestry and Land Scotland website. For our Tornish Estates and the Nature Reserve, go to artornish.co.uk and the Scottish Wildlife Trust website. And for information about any of the places that were visited in this whole series, take a look at roadtothisles.com forward slash podcast. Well, from Neil and I, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If so, we'd really appreciate it if you could like it, subscribe it and tell your friends. See you next time. Slanger. Coastal Connections, Road to the Isles is produced by Freya Hellier. Many thanks also to Les Back for the additional music and to the podcast sponsor, Highlands and Islands Enterprise. <laughs>